have the opportunity to preach from the Gospel of Luke. We've been going through Luke, uh, verse by verse, chunk by chunk. And here we come to the place where awful, awful things are happening. It just seems like everything is falling apart, and it's just, uh, it's a tragedy. And what I want to talk about today is, uh, so what do you do with that? What do you do when, when your life feels like a tragedy, when you're, uh, when you're faced with tragedies that you feel like, this just, just should not happen. This isn't supposed to happen. This is not the way I planned it. This is not what I had in mind. Everything is falling apart. And that's what's happening here. So we need to pray. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, your name is above all names. It is at your name that every knee will someday bow. Because you ha- the, the Father has given you the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But before that, before that glorification, your name was the Lamb of God. The Lamb who gave his life for the sins of his people. So Lord, we pray that you would enable us to, to learn from your word what it means that Jesus Christ is in fact the Lamb of God. That we will learn something about the glory of who Jesus is to us. And that we will appropriate it in such a way that every day we live and when we go to work and when we are with our children and when we're with our grandchildren and when when we are doing life, that we are doing it under the lordship of Jesus Christ and, and sensing that we are part of the kingdom of God. And Lord, I pray that you would open up some of those things for us that would be practical and helpful to us out of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Everybody got a Bible? Got it on your cell phone, on your tablet? Find Luke chapter 22. We're starting with the very first verses. You know that John, uh, last couple of weeks, has been talking about Jesus coming back. Glorious. You know, I was just telling John last week that, you know, it's always a good idea to talk about Jesus' return. It just, there is something that is so encouraging. There is something that fills the heart of the believer waiting for him to come. And it's just to talk about Jesus coming back is a glorious thing, and it fills my heart with joy. So, but before we can, before Jesus comes back, uh, several things must happen. And they're pretty dark. And that's what we're going to talk about here. Luke chapter 22, listen to the word of God. We'll start at verse 1, go down to 13. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them. 
the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he told him and prepared the Passover. We're going to concentrate on the first six verses. And next week, David Miller will be here to tell you about the Passover celebration that was to happen. So we're not going to major on those last uh, several verses. We're going to look at first at these first six verses. um, Because I feel like I just have to stop and look at this. This is hard. Because we're going to talk about a dark passage here. And maybe some of you are going through a dark passage, and I hope that you'll find hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ through this passage. First of all, let's talk about the tragedy of corrupt leadership. Uh, Verses 1 and 2. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread drew near, called the Passover, the chief priests and the scribes are seeking how to put Jesus to death. And they feared the people. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, these leaders are messed up. There is such a deep corruption in these leaders. And that's a hard one. Some of you perhaps may have been in situations where the leaders at your job or your church were corrupt, and you felt like you couldn't lean into these leaders. What do I do when my leaders are that bad, when they've gone off the deep end? What do I do? You know, the Word of God talks about uh, leadership. It says that, um, I mean, God does not expose these bad leaders because he has a problem with leadership in general. God exposes these leaders because the Bible does not sweep the dust under the rug. When you read the Bible, you don't hear about a world that somebody wants you to believe really exists. When you read the Bible, you don't hear about a world that has been uh, kind of swept clean and, and everything is kind of neat and everything is orderly and everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. It's not a child storybook world. The Bible tells you just the way it is, where you've got things that ought not to be, like corruption and leadership. Chief priests, teachers of the law. Now, this is really bad. They are supposed to be taking care of God's people. The teachers of the law tell you what God commands, and the chief priests tell you what to do because you didn't do what God commanded. The chief priests are those who tell you, who give you the sacrificial system whereby someone innocent dies for the guilty so that the commands that you broke from the law of God are atoned for, meaning that you experience forgiveness and mercy because someone, an innocent animal sacrifice, took your place. 
And so you've got the teachers of the law and the priests. And together, all they want to do is get rid of Jesus, the rabbi from Galilee. Why is that? Well, Jesus does have a rap list with them. It goes something like this. First, he had the nerve to heal on the Sabbath day. He attracted too many people and stole their hearts with something more real than what the leaders could offer. Jesus talked about himself as though he were equal to God himself. And he didn't apologize. Jesus openly announced their leader, denounced their leadership and said that they were messed up hypocrites full of death and greed and self-indulgence. So they got to get rid of him in order to have their respect back. They got to get rid of Jesus so that they can have their control back. But there's one problem. Passover is happening in Jerusalem. Now that's good news for the leaders because here are the leaders and here's Jesus and we're all together. Great. The bad news is you got two million other folk who may not go with the plan. They, they could start a riot. And so they feared the people. And they've got to come up with, how are we going to do this? How are we going to get Jesus separated from everybody else so that we can do this quietly so that it doesn't start a riot? It's got to be an inside job. And they're having this meeting and they're wondering, they, they, get, they hit this wall and they're trying to figure out, what are we going to do? And in walks Judas to their meeting. And they said, everybody stop talking. Here comes a disciple. And Judas said, no, that's not what you think. What do you want, and what's it worth to you? So they made an agreement. They made a deal. Judas said, I will get Jesus in a separate place where nobody else, where there won't be crowds of people. I'll take care of this. And they said, fine. You are, uh, you just made our day. And they agreed to give him 30 pieces of silver, which I, as I understand it, I've heard two different quotes on this. I've heard it was like four months of wages to do this. This is a tragedy. I mean, the kids are taught to look up to these leaders. Oh, here comes the chief priest. He deserves respect. Kids are taught to look up to these leaders, and this is such a tragedy. Leadership is supposed to be a good thing. You go to Hebrews chapter 13, God has a vision for good leadership. He says, obey your leaders, for they, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. God comes to the elders of your church, and he says, what did you do with them? And the elders of your church, it says that they even lose sleep over you. That's what the word watch over actually has the connotation of losing sleep over you. So it is good to have good leaders in your life. It is good to have people that care about your soul. Uh, anarchy is not the thing. That's not what God is after here. He says, obey these leaders. So God does not expose these leaders because he has a problem with leadership. He exposes the leaders because throughout the whole Bible, leadership is appointed by God because God's people need good leaders. In fact, Paul, Paul said, the reason I'm in leadership is because of this. He says, I want 
to present everyone mature in Christ. I want to see Christ formed in the people that I minister to. And that's what we want to see in your lives. That's what the elders are for. We want to see Christ formed in you. We want to see you walking with Christ, believing the gospel in every aspect of your life. We want to see you finding new obedience through your faith and through your repentance, turning away from sin, embracing Jesus Christ, living a newer and newer and newer life as you go along. That's what we want to see happening in your life. That's what we're here for. And we're going to mess up, too. You know that. We have messed up many times. And we don't do that perfectly. We don't do that perfectly well. But you need to pray for your elders. Because that's what we're here for. So trust God. Follow your leaders. But hold them accountable to God's word. You see, any of us running off course, off track, come, hold us accountable to the word of God. Keep us honest. Because leadership has its own specific temptations. You know what I'm talking about? You know there's some kinds of temptations that only leaders experience. There's certain kinds of temptations that, that are, are, are fed by leadership, by having a lot of people that know who you are. And um, it can get real ugly. So it's a tragedy that the leaders of God's people are so deeply it's also a tragedy that we have a betrayer. This is where the unthinkable happens, verses 3 through 6. You know, just when the leaders are scratching their heads, well, how to find Jesus apart from the crowd, here comes Judas, the answer to their prayers. Why would a man who walked with Jesus for three years and seeing the things that people see when they walk with Jesus for three years. Seeing people healed. Seeing people understand what the fatherhood of God is all about. Seeing people even raised from the dead. How can a man who walked with Jesus for three years do this? How in the world? One of the twelve. I think the Bible puts that in there, one of the twelve, just to make you see how horrible this thing is. This man was in church, but he didn't love Jesus. This man hung out with Christians. He hung out with the followers of Jesus, but he himself did not love Jesus. And you know the funny thing about it? It was so deceptive that when Jesus announced that there was a betrayer, all 12 of them are going, is it me? Nobody knew who it was. It was that deceptive. Why would a man do that? I, I don't know. I can't feel that. Maybe it's the love of money. Maybe he wanted in with the leaders. I don't know. But the tragedy, one of the 12, he had every opportunity to see the king and the kingdom, and he didn't feel it. Most of the time, out of his grace and kindness, God will hold back the evil that people can do so that people are not as evil as they could possibly be and destroy themselves. This time we've got one more factor, allowing Judas to go on with his evil plan, and it's right here in verse 3. Then Satan entered in to Judas. The tragedy of Satan's involvement. 
you and I both know that anytime Satan shows up, it's a tragedy. He is never up to any good. We believe in this church in a real, personal spirit named Satan, also called the devil, also called the accuser of the brethren, because the Bible says that he exists. He is your worst enemy. Satan wants most of all to keep the eyes of your heart from seeing Jesus Christ and all that he is. So instead of the usual common grace restraints, common grace means that God is good to his whole planet and that he has certain restraints in place that by his grace he keeps people from destroying themselves. So that So instead of the usual common grace type of restraints, Satan enters into Judas. I mean, it's not like Judas was okay, and then Satan came in and messed him up. Because you see, there there are three things that work together. Uh, The Bible talks about the world, not the world as God made it, not the good creation, uh, not the arts and literature, not that. But the world meaning the world system of thought, the, the... the, the aspect, the sinful aspect of the culture that you're living in. And then the flesh. That is not, ta- not talking about raw meat hanging up in a butcher's, uh, butcher's store. We're talking about, that's, 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 the Greek, that's the Greek word that is often called, is often used for the sinful nature. The bent that we have towards rebelling against God. And then we also have the devil. So here we are, we're living in the world, we're living in a place where... Uh, where the values seem to work against the values of the kingdom. And then we've got our own little enemy living within us that someday we will be rid of, thankfully. I mean, that we, you know, we are not the sinful nature. The sinful nature is living in us as a bad tenant. We've already served the eviction notice, but he hadn't left yet. But when we see Jesus face to face, he'll be gone. And you will be without sin. You will not have to do that stuff anymore. You won't be a slave to sin any longer. And that's wonderful news. So we have the, we're living in this. We're living in a uh, in, in a world that's giving us our values. You know, uh, 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 make as much money. The person who dies with the most money and the most toys wins. Those kinds of of values that work against the values of the kingdom. And we've got this in, inner enemy uh, called the flesh or the sinful nature. And then Satan comes along, and all he has to do is make a few suggestions and stir things up in the flesh. And things begin to happen. So Judas already had this predisposition. He was all, uh, John said, John said that, uh, not our pastor John, the apostle John, said that Judas was in charge of the money. And being in charge of the money, he used that opportunity to make himself wealthy, that he was pulling money out of the money bag. He was into it. So he was already, he was already walking the opposite direction of the rest of the disciples and walking the opposite direction of the move of the kingdom. And then Satan enters Judas, enabling to do, him to do, to go through with it, to, to keep going in that direction. But here's what's confusing. 
I mean, I looked at this badge and said, Satan, you're so, I mean, we usually think of Satan as pretty smart. You know, he's evil, but he's pretty smart. But I'm thinking, this is stupid. Isn't he kind of shooting himself in the foot? Because if Jesus goes to the cross and gives his life for the sins of his people and then rises from the dead and sends the Holy Spirit, isn't that the beginning of the end of Satan? I mean, the Bible says in, in, in Genesis chapter 3, it says that, uh, that, that when sin entered the world, God came, in, came along and said this. He said that there will be the seed of the woman. And he's referring to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The woman being Mary. And he said that the seed of the woman, Jesus, is going to crush the head of Satan. Yeah, you'll bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And that's going to be that. So Satan knows that his days are numbered. I mean, Satan can read the Bible just like we can, you know. And it says in the book of Revelation that he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire with all of his helpers. Never to be heard from again. Gone. So why would he entice Judas to come together with the leaders to help fulfill Jesus' mission of dying, rising from the dead, sending the Spirit, and demolishing Satan. Why? What's going on? I think it's because this is plan B. If you read earlier in the Gospels, you hear plan A. Plan A is Satan coming to Jesus repeatedly and saying, hey, why don't you do something other than die on the cross? Three times, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And all three times, there is, there is you know, comfort, glory, recognition, power, and control offered to Jesus without the cross. Well, Jesus, though he became sin for us, He became regarded as sin and judged as a sinner in our place. He never sinned. He overcame the three temptations, but then Satan comes along again. And he says, okay, I'll speak to his buddy Peter. Jesus said, who do people say that I am? He said, well, you're, you know, this, that. He says, who do you say I am? And Peter said, I know. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, The Holy Spirit revealed that to you. And Peter's feeling really good. And then Jesus says, now, I'm going to die soon. I'm going to be put to death. And then I'm going to rise again from the dead. And Peter said, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 no. No, that is not going to happen to you. As long as I have anything to do with it, it won't happen to you. To which Jesus replies, not to Peter. But beyond Peter, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have the things of the kingdom in mind. You've got the things of the world on your mind. So that was plan A. Satan says, I will try to change Jesus' mind. Have you ever tried to change Jesus' mind? (laughs) Futile. (laughs) Never mind. Don't try it. It won't work. Satan says, I'm going to, okay, that's plan A. I'm going to get Jesus 
to go some other route besides giving his life for his people on the cross. Plan B. That plan failed. Plan A failed. Plan B. Make it as tragic and ugly and messy and tra- as possible. Tragically corrupt leadership, a tragic betrayal coming from one of the twelve. Make it as ugly as possible. And this is tragic. Now, Satan himself is involved in making the worst possible thing that could ever happen in the whole world happen. There's nothing about this story that's not tragic. There's nothing about this that makes the, this, these tragedies less tragic. You can't say, well, maybe the leaders were having a bad day. Maybe Judas fell into it at the heat of the moment. You can't say any of that. It is just that bad. Just the way it is written here. So, what can you say about that? Where's the hope in that? What can you say when tragedy strikes you? Where is the hope? How can you have hope in the middle of tragedy without going into denial? You know? I mean, that's what, um, that's what we do a lot of times. We, we don't want to face how hard stuff is. So we find ways to cope with it. Um, some way to dull the pain. What can you say when tragedy strikes you? Where is God when you experience tragedy in your own life? Couldn't a loving God kept it from happening? What do you do with that? I want to say that this is more than a tragedy. I want to say that this is not less than a tragedy. But it is more. Why... Was everybody in Jerusalem? Remember what, what was what was the event that was happening in Jerusalem that attracted so many folks there? What was happening? What was what was the name of it? Passover. Passover is the key. Passover is why all of this. Okay, look at this. If you look, if you are familiar with the books of Genesis and Exodus, you know that God uh, that that God established a people. For himself, through Abraham, whose wife couldn't have any babies. He said, well, I'm going to give you a baby anyway. I'll wait till you're around 90-some hundred years old, then I'll give you a baby. And you will become a great nation, and you're going to be my nation. And so Abraham finally, you know, through a circuitous route, Isaac comes along. God says, Isaac is the son of the promise. And then Isaac, uh, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, has a couple of children, Esau and Jacob. God said, it's not going to be the firstborn, it's going to be the secondborn. It's going to be Jacob. Not because of any good Jacob's done. In fact, when you read the story, Jacob seems, you know, kind of off. And, uh, and Esau seems like a sort of a man of integrity. And, and, uh, and, and it just doesn't look right, but God says, I picked Jacob. I picked Jacob, not because of anything in particular about Jacob. I picked Jacob. He's going to be mine, and I'm going to change his name to Israel. He struggles with God. And God establishes the people of God, the people for himself. 
And so Jacob's descendants, because of the famine in the land, they had to move to Egypt. When they move to Egypt, God provides for them through the brother, the, the Jacob, the son of Jacob that they had wronged, Joseph. Joseph ends up being the one who provides food for them, and they're living in Egypt. And now, 400 years pass by, and the people of God are 600,000 men with their, uh, with their families, so it's probably 2, 3 million people. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is taking stock. And he sees this growing people that are not Egyptians living in his land. And he's saying, you know, I'm not entirely comfortable with this arrangement. If somebody came to attack the Egyptians, I'm not sure what side they would fight on. I don't know if they'd help our attacker or help us. And so the king of Egypt begins to to oppress the people, oppress the the Israelites. He begins to put them into hard slave labor. He begins to kill their children. He tries this and he tries that. And, 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 And Moses, Moses, hearing the voice of God in the wilderness, is given a new mission. Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And so after a series of plagues, and one thing after another, hardships upon the Egyptians, judgment, one judgment after another, ten judgments given to, uh, to Egypt, the last one, the last one is the most severe, and that is the death of the firstborn. And what the Israelites were instructed to do was to have a lamb, a, a, a young lamb, and, and they would take the blood of that lamb, and they would, uh, on a particular day, and they would put the the blood on three places in the doors, the two sides and the top of the door. And then, uh, and, and that was a sign of obedience. It's the obedience of faith. We're doing what God says, even whether we understand it or not. But, but the blood of the innocent lamb is, is, is the thing that God uses to finally get Pharaoh to say, fine, go. I don't want you here any longer, actually. Go. And that is the secret to their deliverance because there's a people that need saving and there is a God who wants to save them. And so Passover is the angel of death passing over your house because you've got the blood of the innocent lamb on your door. And the angel of death is not going to bother your household. And so the, uh, the, the, uh, the Jewish people of God would would celebrate the Passover every single year. And part of that celebration was the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And why is it unleavened? Why do we have to get, I mean, why uh, did my Jewish neighbors bring all their yeast and put it in my house so it wouldn't be in their house during Passover season? What is the problem with yeast? Is yeast evil? No. It's simply to remember that we had to leave Egypt in haste. We don't have time to watch bread rise. We got to get out of here. And so it's the feast of unleavened bread and the celebration of Passover. And so, just like the Passover in Egypt, you've got around 2 million Jews in one place and corrupt leaders getting nervous. Just like the Passover, you've got an oppressed people that need God to save them. 
Instead of Egyptian slave masters, you've got scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law tying heavy burdens upon the people of God and not lifting one finger to help them. You've got a deliverer chosen by God, Moses in the wilderness, and now God calls his son to deliver his people. And God delivers his people with mighty miracles, the parting of the Red Sea, and in this case, the resurrection. And then God brings the judgment of death upon the firstborn, the people of Egypt. And in this case, the firstborn son, who knew no sin, became sin for us and took the sinner's place and received the judgment of death in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In both cases, you have a lamb slain for the sins of the people, and Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Passover is a picture of the gospel, and that is why Jesus is so eager to celebrate it once more with his disciples before he becomes the Lamb of God. He spends his last night with his disciples celebrating the Passover, and that's verses 7 through 13. And by the way, he says, where are we going to do it? Where are we going to do it, Master? And he says, well, you'll go in the city and you'll, and you'll find a guy uh, carrying, um, what's he carrying? Carrying a jar of water. Go follow him. Now, back then, men didn't usually carry jars of water. It was usually something, you'd see women carrying jars of water all the time. See, a man carrying a jar, a jar of water, that was different. So he said, okay, that's your sign. Go follow him. Follow him into the house and say, Master's going to have Passover. Uh, doesn't even say his name. Doesn't say, you know, this is for Jesus to celebrate the Passover. He doesn't say that. He says, tell him this is where, um, uh, this, this is where the teacher is going to celebrate Passover with his disciples. And then he arranges the whole thing. But he does it in secret. Why? Because though Judas will show up at the Passover meal, and leave early. Jesus does not want Judas and his crooked leaders to interrupt what he is about to do with his disciples. It means that much to him to celebrate the Passover with them and to institute what we what has now morphed into what we call the Lord's Supper. It's more than a tragedy because of the Passover. It's more than a tragedy because all these tragedies fit into the big plan of a good God. You've got corrupt leaders. You've got Judas and Satan that are all pawns in the hands of God. The prophecies are fulfilled from centuries before that all give testimony that Jesus is who he says he is. Everything is happening just as the word of God predicted. There are numerous prophecies. I've heard that there were hundreds of prophecies that actually were fulfilled right down to the detail. This is beautiful. This is the word of God that you've got in your laps. This is the thing that, you know, this, it was, it's through the word of God that you see the power of Jesus Christ. And, and, it, and, and, and it is in the word of God that you see these prophecies and how everything happens just the way God has planned it. And even in the betrayal, Psalm 49, Jesus quotes Psalm 49, and he's speaking to his disciples. He says, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread 
has lifted up his heel against me. And Psalm 55, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. The betrayal was prophesied. So it's more than a tragedy because it's all about the Passover and the Passover lamb. It's more than a tragedy because this is all a part of a plan of a good God who uses Satan, Judas, and corrupt leaders as pawns. Thirdly, it's more than a tragedy because this is all for your salvation. It all leads to Jesus fulfilling his mission of saving you from your own corruption and your own betrayal and from the power of the devil. This is what Jesus is doing. It's more than a tragedy because today is the day of salvation. You know, Judas, as far as we know, Judas never got saved. You know, Judas felt horrible about it, and then he destroyed himself. But what about the priests? What about those priests? What about those messed up, corrupt leaders? You'd think they'd be so hardened that there wouldn't be any chance for them. But you know what happened in Acts chapter 6? In Acts chapter 6, when the... When the deacons came, uh, became a reality in the church, and the people were being cared for, and the and the 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 uh, the, the power of, of of the of what God was doing in the world was evident, and people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what it said: it says that the word of God continued to increase, and the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So there are two responses to what Jesus has done. One, remorse and despair. Two, faith in Jesus Christ is the hope of your life. The gospel does not make tragedy less of a serious matter. It doesn't make tragedy less of a tragedy. The gospel doesn't take away. The gospel adds hope. Because these particular tragedies happen, the corrupt leaders, the betrayal, Satan's involvement, because these tragedies happen, paving the way for the greatest tragedy in the world to take place, the death of the perfect Son of God, because Jesus did fulfill his mission of going to the cross, there is forgiveness for all of your sins. Because this took place, there is hope for your victory over sin. Because this took place, there is hope for your sick marriage. There is hope for your grief. There is hope for your kids. There is hope for your unsaved family members. There is hope for your broken relationships. And there is the blessed hope of Jesus' return to earth at the fullness of times and all things in heaven and earth will be brought together under one head, even Christ. Because these tragedies took place. Amen. In hope we are saved, says Paul. We know that for those who love God, all these things work together for good. To those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. He called you by name. Those whom he called, he justified. He took away your sins and he gave you his righteousness. 
And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you experience the forgiveness of sins today, you're as good as glorified. You're going to make it to heaven. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, well, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against you, God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what happened. That's all of these horrible things had to happen in order for this glory to happen. So... Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. The worst, the very worst nightmare you can picture in your mind cannot separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are united to Jesus Christ by faith, for all of you who have come to Jesus and received his free gift of uh, of eternal life and forgiveness of sins and righteousness, as he freely offers those things to you as the gospel, as I do for you today. I freely offer this on the authority of the word of God. God has spoken, and all who come to Jesus Christ will be saved. And God has spoken, all who keep coming to Jesus Christ who are, who are saved will find greater and greater enjoyment of Jesus Christ and, and greater and greater freedom from sin, and someday will be fully free from sin altogether. So, no less tragic, but you have the addition of hope. Let's pray. Lord, we, we are, um, we look at the gospel when we see what, what Christ Jesus has done for us. I pray that you give each one of us the response that is appropriate to wherever we are in our lives. Lord, I pray that you, that you would grant me repentance in those deep places that I need to turn away from, from finding satisfaction in anything other than who Jesus is. I pray, Lord, that you would give us all eyes, spiritual eyes, that you'd open up the eyes of our heart to see who Jesus is in all of his glory and his grace, and what he's done for us. I pray, Lord, that that you'd give us faith to believe this afresh, to keep believing it, to believe it tomorrow and Tuesday, those days that we are not here talking about it. I pray that you would also give us hope when we face stuff in our lives that feels so wrong and feels so tragic and feels like everything has, has, has gone south. 
that we will find our hope in Jesus. That we will just lean on Jesus. Trust in Jesus. I pray that uh, in this, in this, we would also be beacons of hope for the watching world. I pray, Lord, that we would live in such a way with hope in Jesus Christ that people will come to us and demand that we give them an account for the hope that lies within us. And that you'd fill our mouths with the words that would glorify Jesus in that circumstance. I pray these things in Jesus' name.